Hello and welcome to Congress Talks, the podcast that brings you the latest from the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. I'm Aileen O'Mara and in this episode, Guy Ryder, the Director General of the International Labour Organisation, came to Dublin to meet with Congress and the government. He came to the Congress Talk studios to discuss the challenges of the changing workplace and the role of trade unions. I asked him first what the ILO does. The International Labour Organisation is part of the United Nations. It's that part of the United Nations which deals with, as you'd expect, labour and social policy questions. Um, I think a couple of things you need to remember about the ILO. Uh, First, it's tripartite, unique in the international system. Its decision-making bodies are made up not just of governments, but governments, trade unionists and employers as well, which is vitally important, distinctive, Uh, and what I think gives the ILO its real value, certainly to working people, but I think in general. And the other thing I think it's worth uh, remembering is that the ILO is the very oldest organisation in the international system, born way before the United Nations itself. We go right back to 1919, the Versailles Treaty after the the First World World War, and a reaction to the First World War, that you had to do something to improve labour and social conditions in the world, to prevent conflict on the one hand, and let's not forget it, uh, they had the the Bolshevik revolution on their mind two years earlier. You know, do something about labour before you get the revolutionary option. Mm -hmm. So that was the origins of the organisation. Still very relevant today. Well, (laughs) echoes of history are still with us, aren't they, really? Uh, And I think, you know, for an Irish audience too, uh, the Free State joined us in, in, in 1923. It was really part, I think, of the the formative years and part of the foreign policy of the free state and uh, Mm. many observers of that period say look this is where Ireland asserted its uh, presence in the international scene as an independent country and actually did it very effectively Mm. and uh, I think the ILO still bears some of the the hallmarks of that experience. And there's a reason why you're back in Dublin uh, at the moment as well isn't there? There's an Irish connection. Well there really is and we're here uh, every two years to um, uh, to take part in uh, the Phelan lecture. Uh, Phelan was uh, an Irish, Edward Phelan was the the Irishman who was uh, the Director General uh, of the ILO. He was there at the ILO from the very very beginning from 1919 often called the first international civil servant. Remarkable man. A man I've never heard of. Ah, probably you see. not the only one who's never an heard Irishman of. An Irishman and a Liverpoolian like me, because he was educated in Liverpool. British civil servant, but an Irishman, mm-hmm. and an Irishman first. And Phelan was there from 1919, right the way through to the Second World War and beyond. He actually saved the ILO, because the ILO had to go into exile in the Second World War, had to leave Geneva, took refuge in, uh, in Canada. Phelan did all of that operation. And he did something extraordinarily important, uh, which is historic for the ILO. He was really the man with his hand on the pen when the uh, Declaration of Philadelphia was written in 1944. Uh, And in international labour terms, the Declaration of Philadelphia, it's a beautiful text, one page, it's worth looking up. It's a statement of principles uh, for for labour which has stood the test of time. It's got wonderful phrases like, labour is not a commodity, poverty anywhere constitutes a threat to prosperity everywhere. This was a man who not only saved the ILO in in, in the Second World War period, he set it on its trajectory into modernity, taking on the challenges that we have with us still today. Great. Declaration of Philadelphia, I have 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 to look that up. Now, you've written and spoken extensively on the need to promote the decent work agenda. What exactly are you talking about there? 
Yeah, the decent work agenda was actually put together my, by my predecessor um, about uh, about 16 years ago. It's the notion, it's really quite simple in this expression, uh, that what the ILO should be doing and what policy making in general should be directed towards is offering people, women and men, the opportunity for a decent job. Uh, wherever they are, whatever their circumstances, if they want to, uh, to work, they should have an opportunity for a decent job. This word decent is always mm. the one that raises eyebrows. What do we mean? Well, firstly, of course, you have to have uh, employment opportunities. We're living in a time when there's over 200 million people unemployed in the world. So employment creation is clearly an imperative. Mm. But with that goes the need for basic social protections. Uh, nearly uh, three workers out of four in the world lacks adequate social protection. So we believe social protection is a uh, integral part of, uh, of having a decent job. Uh, decent work is one where your rights are respected uh, as well. Uh, we have a set of fundamental rights defined by the ILO, the right to organise, the right to bargain collectively, the right to be free from discrimination at work, the right to be free from forced labour, uh, and uh, to be free of child labour as well. So we want to see universal respect of fundamental rights at work. Regrettably, we're quite a long way away from mm -hmm. that, uh, that ambition. And the final pillar of decent work is social dialogue. The notion that, you know, when a conflict or a problem arises, it's not resolved through unilateral decision by one party. It is a subject of dialogue and resolution through dialogue. Mm -hmm. And of course, Ireland's had a very interesting experience with its own yeah. uh, trajectory of social mm -hmm. dialogue. Uh, mm -hmm. But I again think this emphasis on social dialogue is very much uh, something uh, which is with us today, as mm -hmm. we see in many countries, uh, trade unions and employers struggling, I think, to find the, the space and the meaning uh, for, for dialogue mm -hmm. purposes. And I know the ILO has produced two reports recently on wages and job creation. And, you know, one of the, I suppose, depressing things is that the trend is moving in a negative, in a negative space, isn't yeah. it? And we are all here in Ireland, particularly, very concerned about the whole agenda around Brexit and around our new American president as well, well indeed. Uh, Mr. Trump. So what do you say to that? Are, are you pessimistic? Well, just to revert to what you mentioned, those two reports, what do they show? Mm -hmm. uh, they show that over the last five or six years or so, when it comes to wages, we've seen a significant slowdown in wage growth. In many parts of the world, wages have either stagnated or grown extraordinarily slowly. Uh, and probably worse than that is the fact that those, the lower down the, the, the sort of the pecking order you are in the labour market, the worse you've done. Because where wages have shown some resilience, it's those who are better off, who've got the skills which remain marketable. So wages have stagnated, uh, and that reflects, I mean, it's one side of the same coin, isn't it? The fact that we've seen a decline in the labour share of national income now uh, across the industrialised world in particular for more than 30 years. So returns to capital are standing up much better. Returns to labour have, have, have fallen for a period of decades. And, of course, this has, I think, extraordinarily important consequences for working people, of course, for trade unions, of course, mm -hmm. but I would say more broadly uh, for the way our societies work, for inequalities in our society, yeah. and eventually for their cohesion. Which brings me a little bit on to your question about politics, because you know, if you look at Brexit and if you look at uh, some of the recent uh, electoral results that we've seen, the United States being an example, um, 
I think you've got to, before you sort of worry about what might be coming next, <laughs> you've got to wonder where it's all come from. Yeah. Why is this yeah. happening? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, and speaking as a Brit, well, Brexit's pretty easy in my mind to explain. Now, I didn't see it coming, so this is wisdom after the event. But if you look at the map, if you look at the, the voting map of the United Kingdom, set Scotland aside, set Northern Ireland aside as special issues, mm-hmm. uh, you look um, at the electoral map, and frankly, those regions of the United Kingdom uh, which are doing badly, those where unemployment is high, wages are stagnating, if people have a job, it's very frequently on a zero-hours contract, they're the people who voted to get out. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think... Okay, the migration issue played, and it was played up. But in my mind, at least, uh, I think you explain Brexit by, uh, and this is real, uh, the people who feel that you know, things were passing them by. Mm-hmm. Uh, Europe wasn't doing anything for them, mm-hmm. but it was a more general protest, mm-hmm. uh, marginalisation. Uh, and globalisation. And globalisation too. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think we have to bear that in mm-hmm. mind. And I would hazard uh, uh, the comment that in the United States the story is not... Terribly Just different. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't think so. I mean, the you States see, did get elected in here. Yeah. They did. Yeah. So that's what we've got to think about and mm-hmm. learn the lessons from. Yeah. And it means putting right, I think, uh, some of these inequalities, uh, some of these phenomena of marginalisation, and engineering our labour markets back to somewhat healthier results than those we have been getting. Mm-hmm. How do you think? And this is a, probably a bit of a tough question, maybe. That Congress here can ensure, you know, here in Ireland, that the existing jobs and our standards, employment standards, and the labour rights that have been fought hard for, and that we have got a lot through being, for example, a member of the European Union, Absolutely. but also what we've done through social partnership. I mean, how can we ensure that Brexit hmm. it doesn't spark a race to the bottom? Yeah, I, I mean, firstly, one can understand very, very well uh, the concerns uh, in Ireland mm. uh, about Brexit. Um, and I've read the Congress's position paper around Brexit. And I must say, I, I, I understand very well the positions being taken by, by, by the Congress. Um, we'll see what the British government, uh, the UK government comes up with by in, in its uh, negotiations uh, with the European Union. I think any reasonable observer would say this is going to be a hell of a tough process. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would not like to be one of the negotiators uh, at that table. Um, but what can Ireland do about it? And what should Ireland's um, uh, uh, stance be? Well, I'm, I'm sure that the Irish government will take its own positions in the negotiating processes. But if you look at Ireland, I, I, I think, you know, it's been an interesting, and I'm, I'm sure for Irish working people, a very painful experience over the last uh, the last years. Uh, we saw how the mm. uh, the crisis hit Ireland. We saw the destruction of what we'd all thought was a thoroughly robust and uh, productive model of social yeah. partnership. But when it fell, it fell. It, <laughs> it fell, and I don't detect that people are looking to reconstruct it. I guess the challenge then, and I, you know, I'm a visitor to your country, so I don't want to try to impart wisdom that I do not have. Uh, but it seems to me that notwithstanding, you know, the the collapse of the old partnership uh, uh, model, there is a vacation uh, for dialogue in this mm. country. You, you, with all of the difficulties that this country certainly has, uh, I detect that there is uh, a willingness to consult for the two sides of industry to meet. Um, mm. I'll be getting more information in my visit mm-hmm. to Dublin right now. And I think that's an extraordinarily precious thing to hold mm. on to. Yes. And it's also intrinsic 
to the European model, which I still you know, think one has to yeah. hold on to, has to hold very on to, strongly. I think, yeah, to be, be aware of the benefits uh, of yeah. what we and do have the and hang on get. to them. Yeah, fight for them. Yeah, fight, for them. fight for them. Because I think Ireland does have resilience, has had a resilience, but a lot of people did get left behind, you're right. And the danger was that we threw, everything got thrown out with the bathwater. Sure. But uh, hopefully, you know, that it's beginning to swing back a little now. The pendulums do that. tend to yeah. come down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So look, looking abroad, then looking at the big international picture, because yeah. I mean, it is the you know it is the ILO we're talking about here. I mean, Congress here has been looking at that too in relation to work practices abroad. I'm looking particularly say something like Qatar, where you know the 2022 World Cup. What's the ILO's role role in this? Well, Qatar is a particular case for the ILO because we have a major complaint open, um, a complaint um, forwarded by the International Trade Union Confederation, to which the Congress is affiliated. Uh, the uh, the aim of the complaint being, if you like, the treatment of uh, the very large numbers of migrant workers mm-hmm. in Qatar. They form, obviously, the, the vast majority of working people in the country. And I think there's no doubting, uh, no disputing the fact uh, that their conditions are the subject of very, very serious concerns. I'm speaking diplomatically. Um, you know, Qatar is a country with no democratic process, no trade union rights, no trade unions as such. And the question is, how can we act to try to ensure that uh, migrant workers that go to Qatar, often because they're obliged to, they've got no real Mm -hmm. option in life other than to Mm -hmm. earn a living in Qatar, are not subject to uh, the types of abuse that I think by any standard, by any observer, should be considered unacceptable in this day and age. Now, I've actually uh, just had my colleagues in Qatar, in Doha, trying to deal with the government on the process uh, of negotiations towards trying to agree a process of uh, cooperation with Qatar to try to fix the problem that they have. And, And here is the distressing thing or the frustrating thing about Qatar. They have the means to solve the problem. They're not a poor country. They're not a poor country. I mean, they cannot claim lack of resources. They cannot claim lack of know-how. They can buy in the know-how. And frankly, we think, you know, it's not very difficult for them to take credible moves to solve the problems that they have. They have to solve the processes through which migrant workers are recruited uh, to make sure there's no fraudulent contractual processes. They have to have basic processes of labour inspection, of conflict resolution uh, involved. And then, quite frankly, they have to uh, deconstruct this situation, the so-called father system whereby a worker is sponsored by an employer and that worker is basically in the control uh, of that employer Mm -hmm. to the extent that they cannot break a contract they cannot always leave the country freely when they want to and of course a complaint raised by the ITUC uh, would maintain that these situations sometimes amount to forced labour because the constraints on the worker are such that their liberty is, is removed. Now, you know, the case of Qatar is, is, is uh, salutary in a number of senses. One, it stands out as a situation that needs to be corrected. Mm-hmm. And Qatar was a number of countries in that situation. And secondly, it shows what the ILO can do and cannot do. I mean, we're not the United Nations. We can't send in the blue helmets. Uh, we're obliged to operate through our processes, through negotiations, through persuasion which might sound a little bit weak to some people or insufficient to some people. And many of us wish we had more uh, instruments in our hands. But the fact of the matter is those instruments have given results over the years. It takes time. Mm-hmm. It takes determination. You've got to grit your teeth and keep at it. 
But I think we all know that in, in, for the most part, that's how results uh, are produced. Guy Ryder of the ILO, thanks very much for coming on Congress Talks today. Thanks very much. ILO Director General Guy Ryder there. And that's all from Congress Talks for now. Remember to follow us on Twitter, at Congress, and on Facebook. And thanks for listening.